Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Morning, Sunridge. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So uh, whether you're joining us here, right here in our building or online, I just want to say welcome. Welcome to Sunridge. Welcome back to some of you that have been traveling, and uh, I see that you're back. And uh, if you don't know me, you're a guest today, or you just haven't been paying attention when you have been coming. Uh, my name's Britt. I'm, I'm, I serve the church here as a lead pastor, and uh, today we're going to be looking in Exodus 18, as CJ just pointed out. And uh, there's my table. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. So I want you to uh, start this morning by... I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture um, the food that you absolutely hate. Okay, so just close your eyes, and just want you to think about it. The, the most awful thing that you could ever think of that some people call food. It might even make you gag. So now open your eyes. So you know what I thought about? Um, I mean, I'm not a picky eater. There are some things that I don't like at all. But when I think about a terrible food, I think of lima beans. <laughs> lima beans. I mean, my parents made me eat them. And, you know, what's interesting is I don't even see them in the store anymore. It's like they were so bad, everyone agreed that they just stopped serving them and selling them. And uh, I say good riddance, lima beans. But... There's one food that my parents never made me eat. Gratefully, it wasn't in our family circle of, of eating food. And uh, I tried it once from someone who told me I'm just going to love it. They thought it was fabulous. And um, when I took a bite, I thought I was going to puke. Liver. <laughs> liver and onions. Man, if you have a job, you don't have to eat liver. So... <laughs> Uh, if eating liver and onions was required to become a Christian, I might have to start singing Hare Krishna. I don't know. <laughs> so now I want you to think about something, not food, but something else that you hate almost as much as that food that you hate. Can you think of it? If you don't have one, uh, I want you to consider this. Criticism. Most of us pretty much hate it, don't we? I mean, anybody, anybody wake up this morning and think, man, I would love to have a big old steaming bowl of criticism for breakfast this morning. Yeah, me neither. So sometimes, and I think I mentioned this before, sometimes I read the Bible, I just, you know, it's, it's like so economical. It doesn't, it doesn't give you much detail. It's skimming over great periods of time and just gives you a little bit of the story. And then other times it just slows down and gives you so much detail, and uh, I'm always surprised when it does that, to put in something like, man, you know, how did that get in there? Why, of all the things that get in the Bible, how did that get in there? And uh, today is one of those surprisingly detailed accounts 
about something that you just wouldn't think would be part of the story of people wandering in the wilderness and trying to get to the land that God has for them. So today you're going to be surprised if you're not familiar with this passage, but you're also going to see how practical the Bible can be. In fact, um, uh, our entire judicial system here in America is really based on what we're going to read today. You'll see that. And then you're going to see at the end, hopefully, how practical, how practical this passage is to you and me today. So let's get our bearings first. We're, if you're just joining us, we're, we're going through the life of Moses. And Moses has led the Israelites out of Egypt. And even though they're free, they have all these major challenges in the desert, right? We, they're, um, they've, had, they've had to find food and water. And last week, we looked at how these marauding tribes would plague them. And now, now they got to figure out such a basic thing as how to get along with one another. And what do they do when people, um, you know, break the rules? Uh, there's some ki- ti- kind of infraction against them. And so Moses' uh, father-in-law, Jethro, uh, along with uh, Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two sons are reunited out here at the in the desert, after being apart for months. And in verse 5 of Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wives, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. And as the Israelites are camped there at the base of Mount Sinai, they have this warm family reunion. Now, if you've been traveling with us through the story, to say that Moses had been under a great deal of stress would be an understatement, right? I mean, you know that he's gone toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He had to get multiple hundreds of thousands, up to two to three million, scholars estimate, of people across a body of water while the Egyptians are, while the Egyptian army is pursuing them. They've had to find food and water, and now they've had to fend off the Amalekites. And now, maybe the biggest challenge of all, his in-laws are in town. And you know how that is, right? Now, I just want to say, uh, none, none of our parents are living anymore, uh, so I can be free. They're in heaven. They, you know, they won't say anything to me until I get there. But um, I loved having Cindy's parents in town. They were not the proverbial in-laws. In fact, it was more stressful for me when my parents came to town. So... And remember, at this time, they're separated. There's no cell phones or FaceTime. There's no mail system. So picture how much Jethro has missed in the life of Moses and his daughter. I mean, uh, uh, in the life of Moses, uh, as they've been separated for these few months. And so Moses fills them in in verse 9. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. So what a great father-in-law, right? I mean, I hope to be this kind of father-in-law. And uh, anybody that's in my phase of life, you know, it can be really difficult to parent adult children. That's a whole new thing. And um, so if you're in that phase, don't, don't miss the opportunity to praise your uh, children's spouses and encourage them and rejoice in the things that are happening that are good with them, and uh, it will earn you the right in the future to do a very important thing, which you're going to see as we go through the story. How, and then also, like, how refreshing is it to have people in your life 
that you can have conversations about what God has been doing in your life. And they're, they're genuinely thrilled for what God is doing with you and in your family. And I hope you have people like that. It's a really important part of living as a Christian in this modern day and time. So Jethro is thrilled to see what God has done, and then he gets to see his son-in-law in action. In verse 13, the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? So Jethro has two questions, right? He says, what is this you're doing? And why are you doing it all alone? And you know, they're not exactly just questions, right? There's something more to this. And to his credit, Moses doesn't get offended. He doesn't read into it. He genuinely considers Jethro's questions. Verse 15, Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will whenever they have a dispute. It is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. So Moses here, he's not deflecting. He's not rationalizing. He doesn't sound defensive. And you know, there's like a million other ways he could have responded in this conversation, right? He just said, look, Jethro, I've got a big job. It's as simple as that. I'm called to be the judge to serve over these people. They have complaints, and I'm the complaint department. They come to my desk, and they have to wait until I can get to them one by one because I'm the judge. But then Jethro takes a really big risk. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You know, if you're a father-in-law, that's a pretty risky thing to say to your son-in-law, especially if you have one like I do that can squat 500 pounds. <laughs> and it's, it's hard, as I said before, with adult children, it's hard to know what you should say, what you shouldn't say. You know, when they're three or four, you just say whatever you want, threats work, um, you know, you can make them do it, and they want to do it usually but not so much as adults. And so is Jethro sticking his nose into some place that it doesn't belong? Maybe, maybe he is. But it sure looks like his intentions are good here in verse 18. He says, You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. So Jethro is saying, Look, all this work you're doing, it's not helping anyone. In fact, it's hurting all of you. And this phrase, wear yourselves out, uh, it, he includes everyone, not just Moses is going to get tired here. He's saying everyone is going to get worn out. And this phrase in the Hebrew, it means to just wither away in exhaustion, to just like, just crumble under the pile of responsibility. Now, he's not saying, Moses, you're, you're lazy you're untalented, or you're ignorant, and you don't know how to do your job. But there's a great lesson here in delegation and in inviting others in to what God is doing. Because what happens if we try to do it all ourselves? Um, we drop in exhaustion, right? We burn out. So does everyone else around us. And people 
are robbed of the blessing of being purposeful and having real intentional work that God has to do in the world. God's work suffers, not just the people. And generally, the people around the person trying to do everything suffers as well, like your family, like your husband, your wife, your kids, your friends. So the counsel of a close family member can be a real treasure, can it? I love the way Jethro gives this advice. It seems wise and considerate and compassionate. He doesn't say, you know, Moses, you need to go faster. You just need to work harder. Hey, you know what? You know what we need here, which means it's not we, it's you, Moses, what you need to do. Um, he doesn't add to Moses' schedule. He helps him. So Jethro is not just a problem announcer. I want you to see verse 19. He says, listen now to me. Listen to me, and I'll give you some advice. And may God be with you. Don't you love the spirit in which he's doing this? And he says, you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to, to him. And then he, he offers two pieces of advice. He says, number one, you do the thing that you're most qualified and called to do. That's what you do. Verse 20, teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they're to live and how they're to behave. So he says to Moses, look, you, you're the leader of all these people. You do the big picture thing. Leaders are not always doers. Leadership is different. And he says, you teach them the big ideas, show them, live it, demonstrate it, tell them about God. And just doing that is going to make the line shorter, Moses. You're saving them from so many issues from the very get-go by just telling them what God has said. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Sunridge continues to be, hopefully, you know, um, it's our intent to be very biblically centered in how we teach, how we approach things. We want to say what God's word has to say about what's happening today or what's going on in our lives. Or, so that's why we spend, why I spend half my week studying to give such amazing sermons every Sunday <laughs> to you guys because that's what I'm supposed to do. And that's what our family ministry is doing with all of your kids right now, the high school and middle school and during the week and in our children's ministry. They are sharing what God has to say with your kids. And by doing that, they're saving them from a lot of heartache. That's why we're so committed to that today. Then Jethro says, after teaching the people, number two, delegate and organize the other jobs. Verse 21, select capable people, capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So I want you to notice, first of all, that character is the number one qualification that's mentioned here in this role. They're to be God-fearing, trustworthy, and just. Now, by saying that we're going to divide your job up, Moses, is not saying that Moses is a lesser person 
nor does it mean that the judges that are doing these other jobs are lesser. This is, this is not identifying a weakness in Moses. This is acknowledging a very human limitation in the way that we do work and accomplish things. Everyone has a different job, and it's supposed to operate like a team. And here's how delegation works. Verse 22, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves, and that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. That's really good advice. In fact, even to this day, we are following Jethro's advice, and it forms a foundation of American jurisprudence. If you just look at our court systems, like from a 10,000-foot level, we have local, state, and federal courts all the way to the Supreme Court. And there it is, right in your Bible. And you know, Jethro isn't just complaining here. He's really, really helping Moses. If you do this, and he breaks this idea down, then number one, it's going to be easier on you. Your load is going to be lighter, and that's a good thing. And number two, you'll have people to share this with. You'll have a team, which of course allows them to participate in the work that God is doing through the children of Israel. And then thirdly, in verse 23, if you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. It is win, win, win. So if you're a supervisor or you're a leader of any kind, there's nothing to be proud about or to feel really, really spiritual um, to be when, when you're depleted and exhausted and your family's falling apart. If we do this, Jethro says to Moses, if you do this, everyone's going to be better off. Be joy for everyone. So what does Moses do? What does he do with this advice? You say to Jethro, okay, boomer. No, check it out. Verse 20, 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. I hope all my son-in-laws are listening right now. <laughs> Moses listened. Whoa. Moses had the humility and the good sense to listen to his father-in-law, father-in-law, and in everyone, everyone's better off. Personally, I'm more impressed by this than Moses' miracles. And he doesn't just listen. Look at how he follows through in verse 25. He chooses capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials, over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. <coughs> Excuse me. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. In verse 27, then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way. You know, he can only stay so long with your in-laws. And Jethro returned to his own country, right? So, you know, like we do every Sunday, I'm going to put a caboose on the story here, on the train here. And uh, I want to tell you, like next week, we're going we're gonna to do a series within a series because the next thing up in Exodus is the Ten Commandments. And uh, next Sunday, we're going to talk about 
how to read the Ten Commandments. In fact, the title of my message is, uh, I've called it The Ten Commandments for Reading the Ten Commandments. Because there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misunderstanding about what the Ten Commandments are. So that's what we're going to do next week. And then all through the summer, we're going to take one commandment each week, and we're going to break it down. So I hope that you'll be here when you're not on vacation enjoying all of your lovely times away. But for now, we're going to stop and talk about what this means for you and me today in the Temecula Valley. Now, what's the big idea that we can take away? Now, there's a lot of ways that Moses could have responded to Jethro's criticism, right? We've already said that. Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been easy for Moses to just give Jethro his resume at this point? To say, you know, Jethro, do you know who you're talking to? I'm Moses. <laughs> I'm really, really smart. I got my education from the most prestigious schools in Egypt. And, you know, I'm noted in history as a victorious military commander. And uh, do you realize that I went toe-to-toe with Pharaoh? And I split the sea with my staff? And I've been leading all these people out in the desert for a few months, pretty much all on my own. And then after extolling his own superiority, he could have taken Jethro down a few notches. He could have said, so this is me, Jethro. Who are you? I mean, you're in the sheep business, right? Out in the middle of the desert. What kind of education did you get for that? What management classes did you take? What do you know about counseling, jurisprudence, and resolving disputes? I mean, really, Jethro. But that's not what he did, right? Let's look at it again. Verse 24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. Do you realize how rare that would have been in that day? Do you realize how rare that is today, right? Yeah. I I heard some grumbling there and some amens. I don't know. (laughs) This one conversation, this this is why I love the Bible. It's like this is buried right in the middle of the story. This conversation makes a difference in Moses' life, right? And in all the people that he's leading and their ability to have a good life, to flourish, to have their disputes settled. And do you think because it did that, did it not also impact God's plan of redemption in the world? To to have this piece of advice to be embraced. I do. And I think that that's why the Bible slows down here to give us all this detail about delegation, equipping others, and something even bigger. So here's, you know, this is is a great passage to read for delegation and for sharing the load. But there's something much bigger here to me, and this is my big idea. You guys ready for it? Cultivate teachability. Cultivate teachability. Like I said, nobody enjoys criticism, right? It's like lima beans. Kids don't like criticism. Students don't like it. Athletes don't like it. Employees don't like it. Supervisors don't like it from their supervisors. Pastors don't like it. Husbands don't like it. Wives don't like it. Military personnel don't like it from their commanding officer. In fact, Colonel Jessup didn't like it. I run my unit how I run my unit. You want to investigate me, roll the dice and take your chances. 
I eat breakfast 300 yards from 4,000 Cubans trained to kill me. So don't think for one second that you can come down here, flash a badge, and make me nervous. Some of you are like, well, why is everyone clapping? I don't know. You have to watch the same movies I do. But if, if we want to gain wisdom, if we want to be effective, and what we do. If we want to have a happy marriage, if we want to maximize our impact, whatever it is, if we want to be blessed by God, we have to be teachable. And since we don't like it so much, we have to cultivate it. And you know, the Bible is chock full of, ad of advice on taking advice. Cultivating teachability. Now, why is such a practical thing so important? I want every boss, every employee, every husband, every wife, every teenager, if you're in here, every parent to listen to what I'm about to say. When it comes to accepting criticism, we want to justify ourselves. When it comes to accepting criticism, we want to justify ourselves. Isn't that, isn't it true? that from our vantage point, most of us are pretty awesome. So if someone calls us out or has a different perspective, rather than listening to their advice, our brains immediately go into hyperdrive to figure out why we're right and they're wrong, right? I mean, Adam justified why he ate from the tree. Cain justified killing Abel. David justified murdering Uriah. Proverbs 21.2 says, A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now today, do we see people justifying themselves and their bad behavior? You know that this week, when you were in an argument with your husband or your wife, um, did you pretty much think that you were right? In fact, you're like 99% right. In every argument, right? Aren't you, guys? No. <laughs> I mean, do, you, do students today argue with their teachers to justify why they didn't pass the test? Do employees have all kinds of reasons why they couldn't accomplish what the person in the cubicle right next to them did? And do we see Christians today justifying their unrighteous behavior or the behavior of others? As a pastor, as a fire chief, as a parent, as a human, I've listened to people justify their behavior instead of listening. I'm talking Christian people. When every verse in the Bible is clear on what they should do in that moment, there's always a reason why, for why they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And you know what's funny? Sometimes the voice I hear saying that sounds exactly like me. It's so weird. Why is teachability such an important part of the character of a Christian? And why am I harping on this so hard today? <clears throat> because teachability leads to wisdom. Teachability leads to wisdom. A wise person is teachable, 
A teachable person becomes wise. And God wants people, his people in particular, to be wise. Proverbs 19.20. Listen to advice and accept discipline, and and at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Such a simple but profound truth. Most of us, isn't it true, we ask for very little advice. And most of, it, most of us would want it even less. And so we make choices, we, we make decisions that aren't wise, sometimes that are destructive to us and to others. And at the very best, they're not well-informed decisions. And sometimes the, uh, someone who did our same job for 20 years offers us advice, and we're like, nah, that's not how it works anymore. And then we wonder how we get stuck. If you're a teenager and you're here today, you want to see your, faint, your, your parents faint and die of a heart attack? <clears throat> not that you would ever want that on your parents, but... The next time you're having one of those robust conversations with your parents, um, just stop and say, well, what would you do, mom and dad? You're going to be emancipated right away. <laughs> the next time you're at work and, you know, you, you can't figure out something, just go to your boss and say, you know, boss, I, I'm kind of stuck here. Um, I have a dilemma with employee X or with this situation, and I was wondering, what would you do? Or the next time you're at home, you know, and you're in a crazy cycle with your husband and your wife, just say, dear, how do you think I should handle this? Now, does that mean I'm obligated to take every piece of advice that every person gives it? Gives it? No, of course not. But what does it hurt to listen to it? You know, I think I've said this before. It's a quote from Rick Warren. He talks about how that if someone came to you and they gave you advice, unsolicited advice, which is sometimes the hardest to take, right? And uh, 95% of it is wrong. It's dumb. It's ignorant. But 5% of it is right. Then doesn't Doesn't just listening to it make you 5% smarter? If that's true, then the longer I live and the more criticism and advice I receive, I will just get wiser and wiser. Isn't that what you want? I mean, I'm 65 now. You'd think I'd be a lot further ahead than I am. So, but on the other hand, It's the fool who won't even process criticism. They're unteachable. The fool won't even process criticism. They're unteachable. If a wise person listens to advice and accepts discipline, the fool is exactly the opposite. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Said the S word. That was the S word in our house growing up. Proverbs 27, 22, though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding them like grain with a pestle, you will not remove their folly from them. Isn't that a great picture? Proverbs 29, 1, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes 
will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. You know, Dave Ramsey talks about the debt snowball. It's like you start paying off your debt, you start with one thing, and as you do it, like, you, it just gets bigger and bigger so that you're just like chunking down your debt. Um, there's also a foolish snowball. That's what Proverbs 29.1 is saying, that if we keep rejecting good advice, that snowball gets bigger and bigger, and even if you're just escaping it for a while, eventually it, it rolls over you. All your bad decisions and foolish choices, they catch up with you. And it doesn't feel like a snowball. It feels like a boulder running you over. Think about Pharaoh. In this story, plague after plague, he's hard-headed. And where does he end up? See, we reveal the kind of person we are by how we respond to criticism. You know, you, it's, this is true, and it's, it bec it's become more and more true in my life. You don't know anything about a person's character until you see them respond to criticism. You know nothing about a person, an employee, a friend. See, everybody loves praise. We all, like, and, you know, like, even, like my years on the fire department and here as a pastor, it's like you have new people come on the job, and it's like, I really wish that you could just, like, criticize them the first day. Like, don't do that. That's a really stupid idea. And then watch them. But that's not what we do in any organizations. Like, we encourage, and we're like, you know, like, man, that's, you're doing such a great job. And it's like 10 years into a fireman's career before you really find out they're terrible. Because the one time you told them something wrong, just falling apart. Here's how to do this every day. Quickly, in your notes. Number one, listen without defensiveness. Listen without defensiveness. Proverbs 15, 12 says, Mockers resent correction, so they avoid the wise. So instead of avoiding the people that we know who are wise or have more experience than us, Proverbs says, seek them out. And if they show up and uninvited in your life, don't resent them. Don't be defensive. Number two, honestly pray about and consider the criticism. Honestly pray about and consider the criticism. Rather than it's like, you know, there's like a router in our brains, right? That like anything that comes in there that doesn't feel good, that's critical, it just wants to reject it. It's like zing, zing, zing. You can't even get in, you know. What if we did exactly the opposite? You know, I'm in an argument, and there's just no way I'm wrong about this. I'm right. That's kind of generally a disposition that someone like me might have. What if, we, what if I transition that to, okay, I can see that we're going round and round. I must be wrong somewhere. I'm going to try and figure it out. Number three, to the, to the degree it's valid, determine to make changes with the help of the Holy Spirit. So number one, listen without defensiveness. Number two, pray. Think about that criticism. And number three, if it's valid, rely on the Holy Spirit to help you 
to make the changes you need to make. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance. You ever heard the saying, eat the meat and spit out the bones? This is how it looks really simply. And this is in your notes, okay? And this is not original with me. These three statements, they're from a guy that I admire, Lon Solomon, was pastor of McLean Bible Church in, uh, in Virginia. And he, sa- he says, in receiving criticism, number one, say, I appreciate what you're telling me. Thank you. Number two, let me have some time to pray and think about it. And then number three, I'll get back to you. And if I'm convinced that God wants me to do something about it, I'll change it. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great response? Man, I wish I could just carry that around in a post-it stuck to my forehead all the time. <laughs> you, guys, you guys remember these? Can you see it from the back? COVID test. Love this part. So, um, no, I don't have COVID. I've been a little scratchy, but <coughs> I'm okay. <laughs> this is my illustration. I'm not trying to bring back bad nightmares to any of you guys, but remember this thing? I remember this swab that goes up your nose and you up your nose with a rubber hose, you know, like you got to twist it around until... You get a good chunk of your brain on there, which happened to me. The first COVID test I did a drive-through when she pulled it out, like blood just started gushing out of my nose. And I think I said, I think you went a little too far. (laughs) But this swab is like criticism, right? It's painful. We don't enjoy it. It's annoying. I would love to avoid it, right? But this is part of the test, right? This is the criticism. So what you do after this, and there are different versions, but you take this swab and you put it in a solution, right? And um, you squish it around in there, you spin it to try and get all the goodies (laughs) off of the end of it. And um, that's prayer and contemplation. Criticism? Prayer and contemplation, right? (laughs) And you got to do it for at least 15 minutes, right? What if when you receive criticism, for the next 15 minutes, you prayed and considered it? And, you you know, you don't have to think about it. I mean, on most of these tests, it says, you know, you got to check it, not before 15 minutes, but not after 45 or whatever. There's an expiration date, so you're not supposed to just go, oh, someone gave me criticism, I just got to keep thinking about it. You know, (laughs) you think about it, you pray about it, and then when you get done doing that, you get one of these, and in some respect, like this one, you kind of stick it in there, but others, you know, you you get a few drops out of the thing, you put it on there. Uh, You Somehow, you take what you've contemplated, and you put it on an indicator. And that's humility and openness. And when you do that, criticism, prayer and contemplation, what's, what's my uh, end game here? When I do that, I'm exposing myself to the truth. 
of the criticism. Then when you do that, you get a line or you don't, right? If there's no line, you have no worries. Prayed about it, contemplated it. Your idea is dumb, I'm not doing it. <laughs> it's okay. But if you get a line, you get a line on here, what do you do about it then? How will a fool respond? Again, this is not, a, this is not about COVID, okay? So don't, don't send me emails, you know. Never wanted to see that test again. This is an illustration. How will a, a fool respond to the truth that comes out? Well, I could rationalize it or ignore it. I could say, well, I don't have COVID. It's not a reliable test anyway. Throw the, you know... I could call my friends um, and say, hey, I took a COVID test. It's got a line. And I could just keep calling the friend, calling my friends until one of my friends finally tells me, no, you don't have COVID. You know, that's, you know, like that. And they could just talk you out of it. Or you could just care less about whether the line showed up or not. If you're a wise person, what do you do with it? You get some meds. You follow the doctor's advice. Hopefully you keep from infecting other people. But if the test says you have it, it means something needs to change. Again, it's not COVID. You guys are with me, right? <laughs> Do you change? I'm talking about criticism. So your friend says, you think you drink too much? Or um, your mom says to you, you know, you need to get your grades up because next year you're going to be a senior and you want to have options about the college that you choose. Or your dad says to you, you know, that guy, he's not good for you. I don't like what I see. Or are we going to be, you know, my way is the way. There's no other way than my way. It doesn't matter if someone does what I do for 40 years and they say that's not the way to do it. It's like, no, I'm, I'm right. Jethro said, Moses, what you're doing is not good. So I have some advice for you. Oh, guess I better delegate. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Oh, wow. You're grateful for illustrations, I see. So, here's my last question. Okay, it's a, first a verse, then a question. Jesus said in Matthew 11:29, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We love that statement. We quote it so often. But what was Jesus' biggest frustration with his disciples? The people that he said this to, they didn't want to learn. How often did Jesus say to his disciples, O ye of little faith, right? Which, did you know in the Greek that's translated, you guys are knuckleheads. And if we know that, 
if we know that Jesus said that the way uh, to have rest in our souls uh, is to be like Jesus, gentle and humble in heart, and to take his yoke upon us and to learn from him, if we know that, then why is it that so many of us are not teachable? I mean, our pride gets in the way, our ego. Some of you, like everything in your life is pointing you to like that moment where you say, God, I can't do it without you. And you're trying to find every excuse you can to not bend your knee and accept God's grace in your life, to just turn it over to God. And you just keep battling him. And then there's many of us that are here today, and we're Christians, we claim to follow Jesus, and then we read this story about Moses, and you know, I just step back, and as simple and as, as practical but profound as it is, I think when, when this got done, when we go into chapter 19, after this part of Moses' life, I think his life was so much better. His life was so much smoother. I think he was happier. I think he was more fun to be around. I think he looked younger. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And because Jethro took a risk in his life to say something that he needed to hear, things went a lot better for him. The same is true for us. So the next time a Jethro shows up in your life and he gives you a little criticism, listen. Cultivate teachability in your life. You'll be a lot happier. And so will the people around you. And you know what? You look a lot more like Jesus. Will you stand and worship with us this morning? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.